0: Our sermon text this morning is Matthew chapter 21 and we are looking this morning at verses 12 to 17 that well-known passage where Jesus enters the temple and cleanses it Matthew chapter 21 verses 12 to 17 This is the word of the Lord give your attention to it And Jesus entered the temple And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful to you, O Lord, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to his temple. The temple, O Lord, that he owned. The temple, O Lord, that he rightfully entered as king, but also as priest and as prophet. We thank you, Lord, that the glory of the Lord once again shone bright in that temple. But we thank you especially now, Lord, That though that temple has been destroyed, though it must have been destroyed, O Lord, Christ Jesus has made each of us who believe in Him the temple, His temple, the dwelling place of God Himself, the Spirit, who lives in each of us. We thank You, O Lord. And we ask now by, by the Spirit, by Him who dwells within each of us who believes, that you would illumine our hearts, and that you would enable us, dear Lord, to understand your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I am sure if you are like my family, that you get a fair share, your fair share of junk mail, uh, most every day that you go out to your mailbox and you check uh, the mail. And the church mailbox is no exception Businesses have found this to be an effective way of generating business, of getting the word out about things. They send a junk mail to us. The, the post office likes to refer to this not as junk mail, but as standard mail. It's a nicer term, don't you think, than junk mail. The church receives unsolicited standard mail all the time from companies that exist to provide products and services to churches. On a recent trip to the post office the church received a catalog from a company that sells what they say are church goods and religious items. The catalog is as big as a phone book and it sells all kinds of products, hundreds and hundreds of products. In the catalog you will find such items as candle holders and banners and chalices for communion wine. One communion chalice in this catalog was priced at twenty two thousand eight hundred and seventy five dollars there was a fifty inch high gold-plated tabernacle a tabernacle sort of like a vault for the Eucharist which was priced at just under seventy thousand dollars in this catalog that we received in the church mailbox now obviously these things aren't really intended for a church such as ours You can imagine the the type of churches that they're selling to, but they really, they sell to a broad demographic, a a broad variety of churches. Uh, They're they're selling items to these uh, types of churches. And so we could indeed find things that would be of use to our own church in these catalogs. These are just a couple of extreme examples. There are more that I could point you to. If you want to see the catalog, I've got it at home. These are just a couple of extreme examples in a catalog that sells hundreds and hundreds of products. And many of these products legitimately, legitimately meet the needs of, of churches. But this catalog and others like it shows something else. It shows that there is money to be made off of churches. There is money to be made off of the people, off of you, who give very generously, who give sacrificially to this church. There is money to be made. And these businesses will do what they can to part you with your money. They'll do what they can uh, to bring a little home for themselves. But as our passage makes very clear this morning, this is nothing new. This is as ancient as the New Testament, and even uh, older than that. It's been happening since the time of Jesus. Now when we think of this passage, the cleansing of the temple, we might limit ourselves, our thinking to how Jesus showed that doing business within the temple, doing business in his house is wrong. And while there's truth to that, and there's truth uh, that the kind of businesses that were taking place and the, the transactions that were taking place that were less than desirable in God's temple, there's something more that is going on in this passage. There's something more that Jesus is prohibiting than simply the transaction of business in this temple. And as we work our way through the passage, I hope you will begin to see it. As we make our way, I'd ask you to think on this, that the house of the king is a house of prayer and worship. And in order to make true worshipers, the king himself would be offered up as a sacrifice the house of the king is a house of prayer and worship. And in order to make true worshipers, the king himself would be offered up as a sacrifice. We'll look at this passage in three sections verses 12 to 14, the true owner of the house. Verses 15 and 16, the unfaithful tenants. And verses 16 and 17, there's some overlap there, the children of the house. Verses 12 to 14, the true owner of the house. Verses 15 and 16, the unfaithful tenants. And verses 16 and 17, the children of the house. So let's look at these first few verses. The true owner of the house. In last week's passage we saw Jesus entering Jerusalem as king. He entered on the back of a beast of burden. He entered to the shouts and acclamations of people as they laid down their cloaks. And they laid down palm fronds. And they shouted out to him, Hosanna to the son of David. Jesus entered to this, and yet Jesus entered meekly. He didn't enter on the back of a war horse. He didn't enter as a conquering king. And when he came into Jerusalem, the people there asked who this man was. They didn't even know him. Jerusalem, though it was the seat of power for kings, it was not where Jesus would sit down to rule. But Jerusalem was where Jesus would be raised up. Jerusalem wasn't his kingdom. We saw that last week. But as we see in today's passage, the temple, the temple that was in Jerusalem, was his house. It belonged to him. And so we see in last week's passage that Jesus entered in meekness, seated on a donkey, but Jesus entered the temple. He entered it with kingly authority, with power. He entered the temple as its ruler. It was his house. It belonged to him. And so we read in verse 12, And Jesus entered the temple, and He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now Matthew doesn't say it, but this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. If you turn to Malachi chapter 3, if you look at verses 1 to 3, you'll see a clear description of what the messenger of the covenant will do when he comes to his temple. And it says there, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That that messenger in verse 1 is referring to To John the Baptist. I will send my messenger, he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Now this messenger, the second messenger uh, mentioned here, is the Lord Jesus Christ. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in the righteousness to the Lord. Malachi 3, 1-3 says what Jesus is doing in this passage before us today. Jesus comes suddenly to his temple, we read in Matthew 21 12. And what greets him there? What sight awaits him? What he sees is akin to a circus. He sees sellers of animals, he sees money vendors, he sees people exchanging currency. Now we read in other parts of Scripture, specifically in John's Gospel, that Jesus has been to the temple before. Jesus has cleansed the temple before. The sights before him don't surprise him. He's not caught off guard by what he sees. But even though he's been to the temple before, he enters it now in his official capacity as king. He's ridden in as king. And his journey to Jerusalem was not to come into Jerusalem as king, but to come into the temple as her king. Now, a little bit of description about the temple itself. The temple grounds were quite large. Over 75,000 people could fit within the walls inside the temple courts. The temple courts themselves consisted of uh, uh, the large court of the Gentiles. This was the outer, sort of outer ring uh, of the temple. Slightly inside that was the court of women. Inside that was the court of Israel, uh, into which only men could enter, Jewish males could enter. And then finally, uh, there were the inner courts of the temple, the the holy place and the most holy place. Only the priests could enter those places. The most holy place, only one priest, the high priest, could enter one time a year on the Day of Atonement. This is what the, the temple complex, the temple campus consisted of. Now, no Gentiles could go into the court of women. They had to remain in the court of the Gentiles. There were uh, placards, there were stone signs that were around the perimeter of the court of women that said no one may enter. Gentiles may not enter upon pain of death. And so the Gentiles were prohibited. They had to stay in this outer large court reserved just for them. No Jewish women could go inside the court of Israel. And no one other than the priests could go further uh, than the court of Israel into the holy place and the most holy place. And even though the temple courts could hold uh, over 75,000, at least 75,000 people, there were hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem for the Passover. And so there would have been a constant cycle of people coming in and going out. It would have been a constant stream. And they had to all go through the court of the Gentiles. And so it was in the court of the Gentiles, the largest court within the temple complex, that the money changers and the animal sellers set up shop. The Gentile court was a large open-air area. It was surrounded by outer walls, the outer walls of the temple. There were were, uh, overhanging uh, 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 roofs that went around, but by and large, it was open air. And the sellers, the vendors, the money changers were under those, those porticos around the perimeter. And because they were there, because the money changers were there, the sellers of the animals were there, it was more like a marketplace and a place of worship. But there's one thing that we need to understand here before we look too indignantly upon what was taking place in the temple, on its grounds, we need to understand this, that the sale of sacrificial animals was a necessary part of the celebration of the Passover. It was a necessary part of the Day of Atonement later on that year. The money changers served a legitimate function within the court. These things had to take place somewhere. Somewhere. People had to come to the temple and present an unblemished animal for sacrifice. And it made much more sense for people who were traveling from far-flung places in Israel. It made much more sense for them, rather than bringing an animal with them only to be rejected because of some unseen blemish, some reason they hadn't noticed, or, or even having gotten injured on the way to Jerusalem. It made much more sense for them to go to Jerusalem, go to the temple, purchase the animal there that had already been approved by the priests, and take it to be sacrificed. And then the money changers were there because the temple tax was taken at Passover. You remember a a few chapters earlier, there were people who were coming around from the temple collecting the temple tax. They asked Jesus about whether he, as a rabbi, paid it. And you remember that Jesus sent out his disciples. They went to a, a stream, they caught a fish. It had a gold coin in it. It was the exact coin that was taken at the temple, it was the Tyrian coin. The temple only took the, the temple tax in Tyrian coinage. And so people who were coming with other forms of currency, Roman currency, had to have it exchanged. These were things that had to happen. They were legitimate enterprises. Everything that was taking place in the court of the Gentiles had been approved by the priests. So it wasn't that the money changing and the sale of animals was illegal. But again, think about the atmosphere. The atmosphere. This is the place where the Gentiles, those who had become God-fearing Gentiles, came to worship. This was as far in as they could go. And where they worshipped was a circus, it was a zoo. The noise of the open market with everyone passing through, buying and selling and exchanging, it must have been a great hindrance to the Gentiles and their limited ability to worship. For the sake of convenience, for the convenience of the priests who could more easily do inspections on animals that were within the temple grounds as well as the convenience of the Passover pilgrims who all they had to do was step onto the temple grounds buy the animals and move on in. The Gentiles were disregarded. The Gentiles were inconvenienced. But it wasn't the exploitation of the Gentiles that Jesus is rejecting here. As bad as that might have been as surely as it was taking place Jesus here was rejecting the entire system of sacrifice Jesus was calling for its end here Jesus was telling these the sellers of animals that what they were doing was going to end He was telling them they ought not to be selling these animals He was rejecting the whole system of sacrificial worship. This system, this sacrificial system had become more about business than about worship. And the lack of concern for the Gentiles who gathered there outside the court of women, was, was a, it showed this. It was a symptom of a deeper problem. It proved that something wrong had taken place. Jesus' actions of driving out the sellers and the buyers of animals, overturning the money tabor, changels, changers' tables was a declaration that this system, which had been in place for a millennia, it was in place with the tabernacle, it had been in place with the temple, it was finished. It was done. It no longer served any purpose because their worship The worship that they engaged in when they uh, brought these sacrifices, it was false worship. And their worship was false worship because they lost sight of the king. Their worship was false because they lost sight of the one whom they were worshiping. Their sacrifices had become unacceptable because they no longer understood that they pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They no longer understood that their sacrifices pointed to Christ's sacrifice, the Messiah's sacrifice. And without looking to the king in worship, without referencing the Messiah's sacrifice on the cross that was surely coming, their worship was meaningless. It had long since ceased To have a point. What Jesus witnessed at the temple was the fulfillment of Isaiah 29 verse 13. The people honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. And we, we are in danger of this as well. By God's grace, by His mercy, He's given us His Spirit to enable us, to empower us, to prod us and push us to worship Christ. But like the Israelites, we are just as in danger... Humanly speaking, to lose our focus, to lose why we're here. We're here to worship the King. We must not lose sight of Him. That's why everything we do in our worship is directed at and through the King. But we too, as sinful human beings, are capable of losing our focus, of losing our sight. Now in verse 13, Jesus quotes from Isaiah chapter 56, verses 6 and 7, which say this, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast My covenant, these I will bring to My holy mountain and make them joyful in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, and for my my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Jesus was fulfilling prophecy. The priests were preventing prophecy from being fulfilled. Right and left, Jesus was fulfilling prophecy when he came into this temple. And yet for decades, for centuries, those who had been given authority in the temple were preventing prophecy from taking place. The Gentiles could not worship. The foreigners as Isaiah 56 6 and 7 puts it they could not minister to the Lord. They were being prevented from doing it. And so the house this temple, God's house, was not a house of prayer for all peoples. Well Jesus also quotes from Jeremiah seven eleven: has this house which, has been, which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Not only was the house, not only was the temple not a house of prayer, it had become a den of robbers. There was thievery taking place. But it's not the thievery that you're thinking of. It wasn't the thievery that was taking place uh, by the the money changers. It wasn't that they were skimming money off the top, that they might have been. This is not what Isaiah 56 or Jeremiah 7.11 is referring to. The theft that is taking place at the temple is the theft of proper worship. They are are stealing, they are thieving God's glory. They are taking it for themselves. The focus of the sacrificial system was no longer on worship. It had become simply about business transactions. The priests... The sellers and the money changers and the pilgrims, they were paying lip service to God in worship, but their hearts were not in it. And when they did this, when we do this, when we mindlessly uh, mouth words as we sing hymns, when we mindlessly think about something else when prayer is going on, we're doing the same thing. Our hearts are not in it, we're not engaged. We have no recognition, no cognizance of the fact that we stand before the living king the creator God well this is the condition of the human heart this is the nature of the human heart since the fall of man the human heart is such that without intervention by God himself, without God coming and making it possible our worship is incapable of being accepted by him Our worship will always become increasingly corrupted over time. God must work to enable us to worship. And so we've got to see that rather than Jesus' acts being acts of violence, and they were, John, in his account of Jesus cleansing the temple in John chapter 2, he says that Jesus fashioned a whip and drove people out with violence. But we need to see that Jesus' actions are acts of mercy. He seeks to call people back to true worship. And so he proclaimed the end of the sacrificial system so that the people of Israel wouldn't bring further condemnation upon themselves through continuing in false worship. Now Mark's Gospel makes it a little more explicit that Jesus is indeed calling for the end of the sacrificial system. In Mark's Gospel he says, it says there that Jesus would not permit the transport of anything through the temple. He would not permit the vessels that were used in the sacrificial system from being transported through the temple. The word they're used for anything is, a, is the word used for vessel, specifically the vessels that were used in the temple. Jesus prohibited them from carrying this out. He stopped them he sought to bring it to an end. However, as one commentator put it, there is no indication, nor is it likely, that any lasting reform was achieved. No doubt the tables were back for the rest of the week as people came to celebrate the Passover. But Jesus had made his point. And the scribes and the chief priests had seen what he did. They knew they knew that he had to be stopped. They saw him as the threat that he was to their system. Well, after the incident the money, with the money changers and the shopkeepers, verse 14 says that the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Now, whether or not the priests and the Israelites would change and return the temple to its promise, uh, pro, his proper function as a house of worship, Jesus made sure through the healing of these blind people and the lame people, that the glory of the Lord was once again on majestic display in God's house. The light had returned to the temple. The glory of the Lord had come back. He was there. The one who was properly to be worshipped was right there in the temple where he ought to be worshipped. Let's look at verses 15 and 16, the unfaithful tenets. The chief priests and the scribes were not impressed with Jesus' display of God's glory. Verse 15 says, But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, these miracles that he performed uh, for the lame and for the blind, when they saw these wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant The priests of all people should have been rejoicing that Jesus was in the temple. The priests of all people should have been rejoicing that he was manifesting the glory of God in their presence by healing these people. How would the priests have reacted if the Ark of the Covenant had been brought back, had it it been returned to the temple? They would have rejoiced. They would have wept. They would have known that the Roman occupiers were going to be thrown out surely the messenger of the covenant surely his coming to the temple was a greater cause of rejoicing and celebration than the ark of the covenant if it would come back well the priests did not see it but apparently the children understood they were crying out in the temple Hosanna to the son of David but the best the priests could produce was indignation they ask Jesus in verse 16, do you hear what they are saying? Under their custody, though it was an excellent physical condition, it had been refurbished and expanded by Herod. The temple had fallen into spiritual disrepair. The blind knew to flock to Jesus in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes could not see him. They were spiritually blind. They walked not by faith, but by sight. They could not see the glorious light of God right in front of their eyes. It was on the priests and the scribes' watch that the temple, that worship at the temple had become so empty, so superficial. This is the state of the temple that was prophesied throughout the book of Malachi. God condemns the priests in Malachi 1 because they despise his name and offer polluted sacrifices to him. God says that the fire that has been kindled on the altar of his temple is in vain. And the Lord in Malachi chapter 2 rebukes the priests for false worship. And in our passage, it is the priests who try to rebuke the Lord. But it is the priests who have made this temple a den of robbers. The priests have, brought, uh, have robbed the temple of the glory of God. The priests are incapable of seeing God's glory when He stands right in front of them. The priests are the evil tenants in the parable at the end of Matthew chapter 21. And they will be driven out of His house and they will be replaced by others. If they were unwilling and incapable of seeing Jesus for who He truly was, And if they were unwilling to worship Him in response to His revelation of who He truly was, then He would raise up others to worship Him instead. Let's look at uh, verses 16 and 17. The children of the house, the chief priests were blind. They were more blind than the people who came to Jesus seeking for Him to restore their sight And because of their blindness, self-induced spiritual blindness, they were unable and unwilling to worship God when he stood before them. Because of their blindness, they challenged Jesus about whether he had heard what the children were saying. They thought that if he had heard these children, the things that they were saying, Jesus would have rebuked them. He would have stopped them from crying out. They thought that Jesus ought not to let these children speak that way in the temple of all places. Their reaction uh, to the children's words was the same as the Pharisees' reaction in Luke chapter 19, verse 39. In Luke's uh, account of Jesus' triumphal entry, the Pharisees were standing there and they told Jesus to rebuke his followers when they were crying out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus responded to the Pharisees in chapter 19 of Luke, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. If these people don't worship me, the stones will worship me. I will be worshipped when I come in glory. In our passage, the chief priests, the scribes, they showed indignation for the children's worship. They showed indignation for their words. They asked him if he hadn't heard them. And Jesus responded, quoting Psalm 8, verse 2, Yes, have you never read, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, You have prepared praise. God will be praised. God will be worshipped. And if those who are called His people refuse to worship Him, He will raise up stones to sing out His praises. If those who are called by His name refuse to worship Him, He will cause infants and nursing babies to cry out and sing words of worship. And they will put to shame those who refuse to worship Him. The glory that is due to God's name will be rendered to him. To put it somewhat awkwardly, God can't not be worshipped. He will be worshipped. The stars declare the glory of God. The trees rise up and clap their hands, the psalmists say. God will be worshipped. The absence of worship of the one true God is a vacuum that will be filled and it will be filled by God. He will raise people up. Psalm 8 verse 2 says that God prepared praise to come from infants and babies. Another way of putting it is that God ordained praise to come from these children. That's how it's translated in the passage that we read earlier in our service, the response of reading. God ordained these babies to worship Him. Before the foundation of the world. It's a part of his eternal decree that these children would cry out Hosanna to the son of David. Everyone who is a true worshiper of God has been ordained to be a true worshiper of God. God raises up worshipers. This is what he does. When Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well. After she had essentially poured out her soul before him, he exposed her sin to her. She was asking about the correct location of where people ought to worship. She was sort of trying to ask some superficial questions. Should we worship here as we say or in Jerusalem as you say? And Jesus told her in John chapter 4, verse 23, that the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Where God is worshipped will no longer be important. It is how He is worshipped that is crucial. God is the one who seeks worshipers. And His only choice is to seek out worshipers who, because of sin, are incapable of worshipping Him. Jesus, on that day when He entered the temple, was seeking worshipers, and He could not find any but the babes. These little babies who had no, in one sense, had no business worshiping him. Who had no cognizance of who he was. And yet they worshiped him. And they were rebuked by the the priests for it. God seeks out worshipers and he seeks out sinners whose worship is imperfect, whose worship will never be proper. But he seeks us out. And when He seeks you and He seeks me out, He makes us able to worship. And He makes our worship acceptable in His sight. He makes our worship acceptable once for all time by the sacrifice of His Son. As we sang saying earlier in that hymn, not all the blood of beasts on Jesus' altar slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away uh, the stain. But Christ our King has become the perfect sacrifice. Christ, the King who rules, became the Lamb who was slain. Christ the King died in your place, in my place, in the place of all who would truly worship Him. He died for you and He died for me. Christ, who sought to put an end to the sacrificial system by cleansing the temple, would become the great and final sacrifice that was acceptable in his Father's sight. And so, though your worship, though our worship here this morning is imperfect, it is blemished, it is tainted with sin, we struggle to stay awake, we struggle to stay focused, it's imperfect. God sees it as perfect because of Jesus Christ. We're enabled to worship God in spirit and in truth because the Spirit of Christ dwells in our hearts. We can't do it perfectly. But Christ, by His Spirit, does it for us. He has ordained us to worship Him. And so as you've been here throughout this worship service this morning, whether your thoughts have strayed or not, whether your thoughts have turned inward rather than focusing on God Most High, your worship, if you trust in Christ Jesus, has been acceptable in His sight. And He loves you. And He receives your praise, just as Jesus received that imperfect praise of those babies in the temple. God receives your worship. If you believe in Jesus Christ... His precious blood which was spilled when he sacrificed himself. It has washed you white as snow. It has washed you clean. It was shed for you. If you believe in Jesus Christ he has raised you. He's raised you up like stones to worship him. He has ordained you like those babies in the temple to render praise to his holy name. He has called you To worship Him. And He calls you to it for the rest of your life. And even though you're unable, even though at times you're unwilling, by His Spirit, He makes you willing and able. By His Spirit, your worship is perfect to Him. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, we are thankful to You. That though we are imperfect, though we are sinners, though our worship of you is tainted with our sin. You have called us up to be worshipers. And you enable us by your Spirit to worship you. We thank you, dear Lord, for your grace and for your mercy upon us this day. And we thank you, O Lord, that though our worship even today is imperfect, you accept it through Christ Jesus by your Spirit You accept it as perfect. So we thank you, dear Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.